If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. If you're new with us, here's what we do at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we are in a study through the book of Acts. We're actually, this is... Uh, Week two, and, and for us, really kind of the beginning of marching through Acts. Last week, we started with an introduction. We covered one whole verse of Acts chapter one, verse eight, and that's actually going to be included in, in the section of scripture uh, today. So if you want some of that introduction stuff, and, and particularly around uh, verse eight, uh, you can go and listen to last week's message. But today, we'll be covering uh, verses one all the way through uh, verse 11. So covering a big chunk for us here at the Parks Church. Let me read uh, for us from Acts chapter one. This is the word of the Lord. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth." And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Incredible scene here at the beginning Uh, of Acts. And so we're going to walk quickly through this passage, but one of the things at first I want us to see is something we might take for granted that is very much evidenced in this passage. This at the beginning of Acts, the writer of Acts is is, uh, the gospel writer Luke. And so Luke is writing Acts to Theophilus and and really to a group of people trying to figure out what Christianity, what the gospel, what this spread throughout uh, the known world, what, what is actually taking place? What's the history to it? What's the future of it? And so here at the beginning of Acts, which is really volume two to the gospel of Luke, um, here at the beginning of Acts, he, he, he brings up a certain thing with the ascension of Christ, right? So in this picture that we just read, it is when that Jesus, after the resurrection, has spent 40 days, is now ascended, right? He gets taken up before these apostles, and they're standing there going, ah. Oh. And this is a unique season in time because he's just spent 40 days with them, and now it's 10 days before Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit will descend. And so they are left there kind of with their mouths open, their eyes open, and Jesus has just ascended, right? And I think something we understand, but what happens? I want to ask the question, where does Jesus go? Where does Jesus go in this picture, right? So he's taken away, and the disciples, maybe for some of us, you're even like, what happened? In, in teaser, we sang where he went, by the way, in one of those songs, if, if you heard it. But the Bible doesn't leave us just speculating. The Bible actually tells us when Jesus ascends, what happens to him. And so uh, look at this, in, and there's three different writers in the New Testament that tell us. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, and here's where Christ is. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Next verse. 
looking, this is the writer of Hebrews, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So it's talking about the death of resurrection, assuming uh, the death of the cross, the resurrection is assumed here, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? Still not convinced? But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God. Next. Peter. Who has gone, this is Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him, right? So where is Jesus after the ascension? Class, the right hand of the Father. And so everybody goes, I knew that. We sang it, I know that. What what does that matter? Here is why that matters. That matters because that is not only the place that Jesus holds, that is the position that he holds. And Luke is saying that right out of the gate in Acts chapter 1, that Jesus is king. There is one person who has authority, and that is Jesus that sits at the right hand of the Father. So right out of the gate, we have to understand, if we're going to walk through the book of Acts, we understand this that the book of Acts is a continuation of the story of Jesus, King Jesus. That Luke wasn't just a story about what Jesus did, his life, his death, and his resurrection, but it is also a continuation in the book of Acts of Jesus' work continued even to this day. And it begins with this fact that I just said, that Jesus is king. So you could look at Luke, right, the gospel of Luke, essentially is like stage one or act one. And then Luke continues to write stage two or act two, which is continued to this day in the book of Acts. And so as we journey through this beginning part, we have to understand that Luke is talking about King Jesus, the one who ascended before those disciples with their mouths open and their eyes open, seated now at the right hand of authority to the Father. And so look at what it says about Jesus. First verse, the end of verse one. It says that in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. All that Jesus began to do and to teach. And there's also an illusion here that Jesus is continuing to do those things. And so when we think of the gospel, oftentimes we we will land heavily on one side of the gospel coin or the other. And here's what I mean. On the doing side or the what I call verbal proclamation side. We'll land heavily and go, listen, we kind of line up with St. Francis of Assisi that says, listen, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. How many of you have heard that quote? Here's the reality, not to argue with a saint, but it is necessary to use words to proclaim the gospel. It is necessary that we give verbal proclamation to the good news of King Jesus, that we actually give verbal testimony to how he has changed and transformed our lives, not because we think that's a good idea, but because when we look at Jesus and we look at the, the, the gospel of Luke, we see that he says, listen, it was about him doing and teaching. It was about his life and his lessons that verbally came from him. And so many of you, you'll flip on the other side of the coin. You'll say, listen, uh, proclaiming the gospel is just all about verbal proclamation, right? It's just if, if, if I articulate the gospel well, I say it to, to, to an audience, I stand on a street corner, then I have proclaimed the gospel. Listen, these are two sides to the same gospel coin, and we need both of them. 
We need verbal proclamation, and we also need practice. This is the, the book's title is Acts, right? It's that we would actually put into practice that which we are vocalizing and believing, okay? And so when we look at King Jesus, our king, if you're a Christian, our king, we look at his life and we say that his, his words were perfectly and beautifully matched or evidenced, as one theologian says, by his actions. His words were illuminated by that which he did. May that be true of us who yield to King Jesus. And so some of you, um, you really wrestle with the resurrection, right? Because the ascension is like the inauguration of the king. It places him at the right hand of the father. He takes back the throne in which he left to come here uh, to earth. And, And Luke does a really beautiful thing here in Acts chapter one, these first 11 verses. And it says, in those 40 days, Jesus gave proof to his resurrection. You know, for us as Christians and Christianity as a whole, everything really hinges on the resurrection, right? If Jesus died on the cross and is still dead, as Paul puts it, we are to be most pitied. But here what Luke does is goes, no, over 40 days, Jesus himself came bodily resurrected and gave the disciples and the apostles and hundreds of others proof Read Luke chapter 24. There are really three proofs that Jesus gave. He said, here, listen, come close, and I want you to see the wounds. He gave the proof of the wounds in his his feet and in his wrists, and he took it a step further from just visually seeing those wounds to actually know, hey, touch them. Touch me. See that I literally have come back. I'm risen from the dead. And the third proof, I think, which is maybe just a smaller one, is that Jesus actually ate with them over these 40 days, right? He wasn't this mystical spirit that just came kind of back as like a, a feather floating or a leaf floating in the wind. But you know, he came back fully, bodily resurrected. And he says, listen, so much so, I'm going to eat with you. And so he says here in these, these things that he gave them proofs appearing to them during the 40 days. And so we see Jesus and we must see Jesus first and rightly so in Acts as king. The book of Acts is about King Jesus. It is pointing to King Jesus. Say, wait, wait a minute, Kyle. I thought last week we talked about the book of Acts being about the Holy Spirit. And to that I say, yes, we did. But what is the job of the Holy Spirit? To witness to Sunday school? Jesus, that's right. She's been in kids' church and she gets it, right? It is to witness to Jesus. So Acts is about King Jesus. But what's interesting is over these 40 days that he appeared to his apostles and disciples mainly, there were two main topics of discussion for them. The first is, is, is without a doubt this, and we pick it up and we talked about it last week, was about the Holy Spirit. Jesus going, listen, hang tight, hold tight. There's one who is coming. My spirit is gonna fall. Petition, plead, pray, wait for the Holy Spirit. Go back to Jerusalem in in, in the Holy Spirit. My Holy Spirit is going to come to you. The second thing, and that's where we're gonna spend a little bit of time here uh, this morning. The second topic of discussion uh, Luke discloses here in Acts is about the kingdom of God. Did Did you pick that up at the end of verse three? It says, so he was giving them many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking, this is at the end of verse three, and speaking about the kingdom of God. So if Jesus is king, then something he very, like he he should do is clarify about the kingdom in which he's king. 
And this would not have caught the disciples off guard. They were longing for the kingdom of God. The, the language of the kingdom and things like that were very familiar to them, that they knew that the Messiah would inaugurate the kingdom of God coming, and all of the, those things happened. However, they had a misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God was going to look like, what the extent and nature of it would actually be. You say, Kyle, how do you know that? Well, we know that from verse 6. Look at the question as, as Jesus is talking with them about the kingdom of God. Here's their question to Jesus. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom, the kingdom of God, to Israel? You're picking up their tension. You're picking up their, their hopes, their desires, what they really want to see happen with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus standing before them. But John Calvin, the great reformer and theologian, he says this about verse 6. He says, there are as many errors in this question as there are words. Right? And so you say, wait, wait, the Bible doesn't have any errors. No, listen. How many of you know when you read the, the Gospels of, of Mar Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you peer into the lives of the disciples, Jesus will constantly say something, or he'll be teaching something, and they go, oh yeah, we get it. Right? Like us, by the way. Oh, yeah, I know how that plays out. And Jesus goes, no, 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 you don't, you, you're not hearing me. Oh, 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 you heard the word power, and you put your earthly definition on it. Oh, 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 you heard great, and you put your earthly definition. No, no, this kingdom has a new set of ethics and values. And so listen, I'm not downing or dogging the disciples here. They have an honest question of Jesus. But they have a misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God is is about. And so John Stott, another great writer on, on this book, in fact, he was dealing with what Calvin said. He said, the verb, the noun, and the adverb of their question and sentence all betray doctrinal confusion about the kingdom. So he just literally blew it up and said, the verb, the noun, and the adverb. So we're going to go to school for just a minute, okay? Like, don't go to sleep on me. So if that's true, if all of those things are wrong, why were they wrong? Right, so, so let's start with, with, with the verb in here. Restore. Restore. You see, what the disciples longed for was for a political kingdom. Jesus, will you now restore back to Israel? Will you now overthrow Rome and bring it back? Right? You're here. You've resurrected over death, hell, and the grave. And we can see you. We've touched you. Right? Restore. How about the noun? I've already alluded to it. Israel. Our group, right? Our tribe. Us. Right? You're going to huddle us back. You're going to bring us back. And we are going to be collectively under you, right? And your banner lifted high, right? You're going to restore it back to Israel, surely, right, Jesus? Or the adverb. That verbial clause that they said, at this time. Do you get the sense of what the disciples are asking? They're asking for an immediacy. Jesus, we want this restoration of Israel now, please. But they didn't say please. We want it immediately. And here's what you see in verses 7 and 8 in Jesus' response that he absolutely refutes and rearranges their definition of the kingdom and how they perceived it. Right? Let's look at it in verse 7. 
He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So go back to the adverbial clause. At this time, Jesus goes, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know when the full restoration of the kingdom will come. There is only one who knows that, and that is up to the, 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 the preference and prerogative of God the Father. And then he goes on in verse 8, which we unpacked last week. He says, but here is the reality. In the kingdom, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So now he's talking about the extent. He's kind of dealing with their idea of a political kingdom. Listen, it's not coming in a nature that you have known or will know, right? This is a different kind of kingdom. It's not about overthrowing political parties or people who are oppressing you. No, it's about overthrowing sin, It's about overthrowing darkness. It's about freedom, what Sam was talking about here. That's what this kingdom is truly about. And not political freedom, but spiritual freedom. And then their extent and just wanting it for Israel. He's going what in this? He's going, no, 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 no. The gospel, the kingdom of God is available to everyone. All nations to the end of the earth. To Jerusalem, yes, Judea, but the Gentiles now will be grafted in. And in fact, it'll be those Gentiles that bring it back to Jerusalem. And so he's opening and rearranging and completely refiguring the kingdom of God. You say, okay, that's that's great. But here we are, 2019, McKinney, Texas. I'm a Christ follower. I don't have those preconceived ideas maybe about the kingdom, but we'll talk about that in a sec. What is the kingdom of God? When the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, what is it referring to? And here's the simplest definition I can give us. And I hope that if you call the Parks Church home, you will get this definition of the kingdom of God. People who are under the authority of King Jesus, living in the kingdom of God, we understand this. That it is the rule of God in the lives of his people by the power of his Holy Spirit. That is the kingdom of God, the rule of God in the lives of his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what Jesus is trying to get the disciples to understand. And they will understand it, hold on, after the 10 days, after Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit comes. But we're on the side where we have the Holy Spirit, so we understand this. Another theologian um, says this about the kingdom of God, and maybe this will help some of you who go, wait a minute, isn't the rule of God everywhere and in all things? Let's look at it. To him, meaning Jesus, the kingdom exists there where not merely God is supreme, for that is true at all times and under all circumstances, but where God supernaturally carries through his supremacy against all opposing powers and brings men to the willing recognition of the same. In the kingdom of God, when we participate in it, when we are in it, we come to the recognition that Jesus is king and we are living in relation to that reality. Where Jesus, where God's rule is evidence in the life of his people by the power of his Holy Spirit. And here's where I think we have to pause and not be so hard on the disciples. And in fact, realize probably that we think a lot like the disciples in Acts chapter 1. That in our flesh, we long for and look for a kingdom of this earth. We long for a king to praise and be praised by. Right? You say, hold on. Are we really looking for a political kingdom? Here's how we know this is somewhat true. 
Shocker, 2020 is coming up. An election cycle, sorry to ruin that for everyone, right? Like, it's coming, okay? We've heard noise, we hear noise. Here's the reality, even in the church we experience, that when someone is elected or not elected, there is both deep devastation or deep adoration almost to the point of worship. That the church is either overly elated or overly devastated. What that reveals, both, by the way, are sinful responses that essentially say this kingdom is our home. What that says is that we are looking for something that can come on this earth that is only promised in and through the kingdom of God. Overly nationalistic? Probably so. I mean, just think about how we treat things in America when, listen, when things come on our shores or when, when things happen here, how many of us know that it is the response of the church typically in America to go, the end is nigh, right? This must be the end of the world. Jesus is going to be splitting through the clouds. Why? Because tragedy has hit our shores. Let me tell you this really quickly, that biblical prophecy does not center on the United States of America, <laughs> right? So stop interpreting it that way. And that's why we don't swing from being overly elated or overly depressed because we serve a king and have a kingdom that is higher than this one. That this one is subservient to. That this one directs, he directs the hearts and streams of leaders like like rivers. That's our king. And so listen, we don't get overly elated and we don't get overly depressed when things don't go our way because King Jesus is still on his throne. And we are part of a different kingdom. So listen, don't just think the disciples were idiots. We're idiots too. (laughs) And so, okay, if it's the rule of God in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, does that have any earthly implication? Does that have really any ramifications here on us now? And the answer to that is a resounding yes. We're going to see it ripple throughout the entire book of Acts. People who surrender to the kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ, who understand that they are part and participating in a bigger kingdom, are living as agents, literally as demonstrators of this kingdom and their king to everyone around them. So it has massive social implications. It has massive political implications, home implications, neighborhood implications, school implications, career implications, sexual implications, relationship Can I keep going, right? Every sphere of our lives is influenced by our king and the kingdom that we are a part of. The kingdom that is here in some ways, but is also coming down the pipe. So what are we to do? In every sphere of our life, we are to bow down to King Jesus. We are to surrender and submit every facet and fiber of who we are to our true king. But for so many of our lives, the true king of our lives is us, or it's preference, or it's comfort, or it's something else that we are bowing down to. We have to understand what Luke is painting right here in Acts chapter 1 to say Jesus is king. He is ascended on high, seated at the right hand of the Father who has brought about the kingdom that by his spirit he has enabled us to participate in. He said, where are you getting that in the text? Let's look at it. I'm glad you asked. 
And when he had said these things, here happened the ascension. Jesus was taken away. In verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You have to understand that what these angels, right? Like, so get the scene. Jesus is ascended before their eyes. They're standing there open-mouthed, open-eyed going, what just occurred to us? And then two angels show up. Like, it's almost a humorous scene, right? And these two angels show up, and what they say to these people watching is actually a rebuke. It's a rebuke. And when we understand that, we understand what God is calling them to, right? And so they're standing there with huge eyes, staring up, and the angels go, listen, why are you staring? Why are you gazing? And so the idea here is for people who understand the kingship of Jesus, who understand the kingdom of God, you understand that you are called to participate, that it is not a call of inactivity. It is not a call to just stare and gaze and go, please come back, please come back, please come back. No, it's a call to engage every bit of our lives in the people around us. And so I think the rebuke happened for, for three reasons, right? I think I have seven points in this sermon, but three reasons why this rebuke happened. One, I think they wanted these disciples and us to know that Jesus is going to return. There is going to be a return. Just as he went away, he will come back. And how our hearts long for that, amen? Like our hearts long for Jesus to come back and for this kingdom to be fully realized. However, his return is delayed because of his grace and because of his patience. The Bible says that, that God is not slow as we count slowness, but rather he's patient, longing that people come into a relationship with him through repentance. Praise God for the patience of our God. Two, I think just like the, the misstatement that these angels with this rebuke were correcting a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding about what the kingdom of God actually means. That Jesus, when he teaches his disciples how to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, is actually he asks something of us to do. That now we have received by grace through faith the lordship and kingship of Jesus. Now that we have salvation in Jesus' name, he now calls us to participate in a work of seeing his kingdom realized here on earth. And the third thing is this. I think it, it's a rebuke for us to understand that it's impossible, it's impossible to be overly fixated upon God or King Jesus and have no tangible impact here horizontally. How many of you have ever heard the, the saying like, you are, you are so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. Hopefully that's never indicted any of you, right? Have you ever heard that, right? Someone's so heavenly minded, no, that is a stupid statement. That is a stupid statement that is absolutely untrue. Let me tell you that if you are heavenly minded, you are going to be of most earthly good. That's what these angels are getting at with these guys who, man, understandably are standing there going, what in the world is next? And the angels are going, listen, stop gazing, stop staring and get going. Go seek the Holy Spirit. Go to work. Go get in the game. But how many of us in our Christian life, if you will, are still stuck there? And I would say not gazing at God, not thinking about the things of God, but rather thinking about the things of flesh or earth. 
See, the word of God even says, seek first the kingdom of God. And then what will happen? Everything else will be added. That when we fix our eyes and our minds upon the things of God, upon King Jesus, when we actually really are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, we actually get proper perspective of who God is, of his rule and his reign in our lives, that is when we become the most good to those around us. That's when it begins to transform us, not from just the inside, but out. It's where we go from just being mere verbal proclaimers, but also livers and doers of the word. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, and this is where we'll land. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. So here's my prayer for us, church, is that the Spirit would set our minds in the right place. That for many of us, he has saved us and redeemed us through his son, Jesus. He has called us to participate in his kingdom, being known and visible in this earth. That he might move us from our fruitless preoccupations and complacency, from our passivity to true boldness that comes from what he said in verse 8. Through his Holy Spirit being alive, empowering, and leading us to all those places that he has placed us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. And so, Lord, with our eyes closed, our heads bowed, God, I pray that through the power of your spirit, you might shape us and change us. God, that, that we, that I might repent from those areas that don't fall under your kingship, that don't fall under surrender and allegiance to you alone, that in my own power and my own strength, I'm trying to lead or navigate through those sins that I habitually find myself falling back into. Lord God, we want to be a free people by your spirit. We want to live as a people, both verbally and visibly, as image bearers of your son, our king. And God, I pray that there might be a burning desire deep within this church to understand what we're a part of in the kingdom of God, what we're called to participate in as your children, as citizens. Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to obey. You'd give us the courage, even as we lift our heads and stand on our feet today, to go out and be faithful witnesses to King Jesus, the kingdom of God, for the glory of God and the good of others. We love you, Lord, and we need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.